Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 30 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. I sort of can't believe we've made it 30 weeks. Thank you to everyone who's been listening since the beginning. And does it make us old now? We, we hit 30? I, I've been old, old now for wrinkled. a while. <laughs> so as we do every week, this week we are going to start off with a roundup of this week's news and labor. Um, Michelle? So um, by now, everybody in the New York area and probably outside the New York area knows uh, about the victory, uh, I guess, of, of Bill de Blasio. And for many people say that it was sort of a victory against Bloomberg. Um, I think the landslide victory of de Blasio was sort of seen as a referendum on the Bloomberg years. Paradoxically, as New Yorkers you know, always are, many New Yorkers seem strangely uh, either complacent or satisfied in a strange way with like a lot of the um, a lot of the status quo that Mayor Bloomberg has put in place during his um, marathon three-term tenure in office. But um, the election of de Blasio also speaks to a lot of uh, long-simmering frustration that people had with um, his many more draconian policies, as well as the rampant inequality. Um, for now, I'm loath to speculate too much on what a de Blasio win means. I, I feel like if I say too much, I'm just setting myself up for disappointment. <laughs> Suffice it to say, um, people are um, happy now, at least that Bloomberg is out of office. De Blasio still has a pretty uh, tough road to hoe ahead of him in terms of negotiating union contracts and dealing with um, this sort of morass of crap and uh, inequality and, um, you know, roiling injustice in our streets that Bloomberg uh, essentially, you know, dumped uh, upon his successor. So we'll see how he deals with that. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's not a job I admire. Um, and so we'll, we'll see if he really is the left turn that the mainstream media seems to like to associate with him. Um, you know, much has been made of his sort of, uh, you know, and all these soft focus features on his uh, background as a young organizer, you know, shades of the uh, first Obama campaign with um, these black and white photos of him, you know, as a, as a young rabble rouser. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously he's changed a lot since then. I've actually been looking at a couple of um, news pieces that haven't gotten a lot of media coverage um, that I think portend some of the issues that de Blasio's administration will have to deal with in some of these hard questions. Uh, one of them, which we touched on last week, was um, the issue of day laborers in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. And the recovery effort that involved, you know, a massive demand for casual, so-called casual labor um, in the recovery effort and what is and isn't being done for the workers who have been caught up in a lot of that work that's going on in the trenches right now in many of these um, instances where we have devastated homeowners, people have sort of raced out to get whatever labor is available. Um, in many cases, this is done through a shadowy network of contractors and subcontractors and sub-sub-subcontractors with very little accountability. In the end, as always, the workers who are in many cases migrants, sometimes documented, sometimes undocumented, they are left with the short end of the stick. They are subject to a variety of different labor abuses as well as potential safety hazards. According to a new report that just came out of some researchers at the City University of New York, in many cases, they were not given protective gear. 
Um, they were virtually unable to take any sort of legal recourse against abusive employers or contractors. Often it just came down to wholesale misinformation on the part of the people who are hiring these people. I mean, they may not have known that it was a safety violation to tell a worker to climb up that roof and repair it without any protective gear, right? Or they might not have known that they need protective um, respiratory gear to be handling asbestos and mold. These are all common sense things, and they're wholly preventable sort of secondary disasters that happen in the wake of natural disasters. And because the city's overall disaster preparedness was lacking. The city was even less prepared uh, for the hazards that would crop up for those workers who are not protected to begin with any day of the year, whether there's a disaster or not. So what happened to the post-Sandy workers is really emblematic, I think, of the day-to-day struggles that these workers face. Many of these immigrant workers are reliant on hanging out at street corners in order to pick up work. Um, Sometimes they have the help of a hiring hall from a worker center, which is one promising model of getting them linked into a more systematized, institutionalized form of work that helps guarantee their safety or at least guarantees some modicum of protections for them at the workplace. Often, though, they fall through the cracks. And although OSHA and these other uh, labor regulatory bodies have been trying to get better at enforcing labor law, the fact is they're woefully under-resourced, and it's going to take a much more comprehensive effort, including more resources from the city, to make sure that these workers are protected year-round, and especially when disaster strikes, because it's often when uh, people are the most vulnerable. And we saw that after 9-11. And again, you know, over... decade later, we saw it um, in the wake of Sandy. So um, that's going to be one thing that people like de Blasio are going to have to look out for. And it's really sort of a cross-cutting issue. I mean, it relates to emergency planning, it relates to urban planning, it relates to infrastructure, it relates to labor rights. And these are all things that de Blasio has at least touched on in his stump speeches. So um, as we prepare for the inevitable next disaster, we're really going to have to hold Bill de Blasio accountable for the actions that he takes on this. Um, Other issues in his famous of two cities narrative. He liked to talk about how the city has been starkly divided between the haves and the have-nots and has invoked all these uh, these images of um, you know vast inequality uh, creating social unrest and social division across a city that is increasingly thanks to Mayor Bloomberg's policy, is a city of the 1% rather than the 99%. And, you know, to that end, he's talked a pretty good game. We'll see if he follows through on that. I was just reading a few days ago about um, Bill de Blasio's promises about affordable housing. Um, Meanwhile, you know, as we gear up for the winter season, uh, this is the season when we're all reminded of the city's writhing homelessness epidemic and uh, the fact that so many New Yorkers, record numbers of New Yorkers, um, don't have homes. If they're not living in the shelter system, they may be sleeping rough out on the streets. They may be crowding into shared apartments with friends and relatives. Um, They're basically living on nothing. Uh, Some of them are living out of their cars, which is a phenomenon that we see um, all across the country. The fact is that New York is dealing with homelessness on a scale not really seen in in recent history. And I'm speaking as, you know, one of the first generation of New Yorkers to grow up sort of the new era of homelessness. I'm in that first generation of New Yorkers who don't recall a New York that never had homeless people on the streets. Um, And so it's frightening to see that trend intensifying again. And, uh, you know, I do hope de Blasio um, recognizes that 
homelessness is a symptom of the housing crisis. It's also a symptom of the jobs crisis. And these are two central planks of his um, electoral platform. So unfortunately, some unpromising news came out uh, even while he was still on the campaign trail about him cozying up with uh, homeless shelter slumlords, um, basically, that had been getting, you know, um, support from the city to, you know, run substandard apartments for precariously housed and homeless people. So that's not a promising sign. But, you know, again, he talked a good game. So we'll see if he follows through. So you have better mayor news. <laughs> well, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know nearly as much about the Boston mayoral race. However, what I do know, and I'm going to try to put on my long lost Boston accent because um, that is where I grew up, is that uh, Marty Walsh from Dorchester is the new mayor of Boston. Marty Walsh is, among many other things, a labor leader. He rose through the ranks at Labor's Local 223 in Boston to become head of the Building Trades Council at the Metropolitan District. And uh, articles have, you know, noted how much money labor spent to get him elected. They also have noted how much money anti-union groups like Stand for Children and Democrats for Education Reform spent on his opponent. So we shall see. Bostonians, I would love to hear what you think of your new mayor. Speaking of mayors who had a marathon term, Thomas Menino was in in office for 20 years. He was mayor before I moved away from Boston in 96, and this is going to be the first time that I... you could even vote. Right, exactly. This is going to be the first time that Bostonians in my voting lifetime were able to vote for somebody other than Mayor Menino. This this last mayoral election was the first competitive mayoral election that I was, like, alive and eligible to vote for. In other election news, the town of SeaTac, Washington, which is essentially the town in Washington where the Seattle-Tacoma airport is... It's a small town of 30,000 people, but it just voted to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour. That means, according to Good Jobs Washington, which is the coalition that has backed Washington's fast food strikes, that more than 6,000 workers in and around the airport will now make that $15 an hour. Um, So those are fast food workers, those are airport baggage handlers, those are all sorts of people who do low-wage work, who will now be doing slightly less low-wage work. I went to Seattle last spring to host an event with some of the low-wage workers from the airport, from area Walmarts and fast food restaurants, and we're sort of seeing that area of the country be the most responsive, at least to the $15 an hour part of the fast food movement's demands. The mayor-elect in Seattle has promised to push for a $15 an hour minimum wage, and it's probably worth noting that the city came just a few percentage points from electing Kashama Sawant to the city council, which is interesting because she ran as a socialist and lost by not much. So we'll see. Maybe she'll run again soon. Apparently in one corner of the country, socialism is not the epithet that it's... Also in Minneapolis, um, Ty Moore, who also ran as a socialist, also lost narrowly for his council race. And closer to home, our dear friends in New Jersey did in fact re-elect their slightly frightening mayor, Chris Christie, who likes to yell at teachers. Who is definitely not a socialist. Who definitely likes to yell at union school teachers and call them thugs. But the state did also vote in a higher minimum wage, not as high as $15 an hour, but it is a dollar minimum increase to eight twenty-five, and it is pegged to inflation. So that means it will go up every year from now on. Mm-hmm. 61% of New Jersey voters voted for that increase, which is 1% more than voted for Chris Christie. So I'm going to try to take heart in that 1%. And yeah, we'll, we'll leave new... New Jersey at that. Right. Congratulations on your new minimum wage. Right. And um, it's important to note that it was in the Constitution. Yes, so. exactly. That it is, that is 
for good, it would take a very large effort to now get rid of that. So yeah, New Jerseyans will be getting minimum wage increases every year from now on. So right. congratulations. Right. And it's probably the one, it, it was the only way that they could have passed it because Chris Christie. Chris Christie, so yeah. Chris Christie sure. whined and complained and right. stomped and blustered about how this was going to just destroy jobs in New Jersey. But so. it just goes to show you that sometimes the only thing, the way things like this can get done is if they are enacted through a more permanent legislative measure that uh-huh. is sort of beyond the realm of electoral politics. Because, um, yeah. you know, if you peg something to inflation, it just makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be subject to the whims of uh, the uh, electoral season sort of uh, political game. Okay, so now we're going to go from Boston to the heartland. The New York Times reported on an Idaho town uh, named uh, Pocatello that had sort of recruited a Chinese polysilicon factory back in 2007. And it was, you know, as the nation was tumbling into recession, there were very high hopes pinned on this plan to sort of redevelop this um, pretty destitute old sort of union town that, you know, used to be a very strong sort of um, bastion of blue-collar middle class. Unfortunately, uh, the factory plans were scuttled because the, you know, the, the finances didn't come through. Everything basically just collapsed. And now the leadership of the town and, of course, the workers who are banking on those jobs are absolutely devastated. And it really comes at at the cost, not just um, of a lot of, you know, now shattered hopes, but really the town invested a lot up front in bringing this factory here. And it just goes to underscore the dangers, I think, of a lot of these sort of corporate subsidies that are rolled out to attract capital to these um, places across the country that are really hungry for jobs. There's a really interesting study that actually focused on New Jersey by Good Jobs First, looking at the price of these corporate subsidies. And under um, Governor Chris Christie's tenure, a lot of corporations got lavished with tax breaks Mm -hmm. and these other, they call them incentives, but what they really are just basically bribes to bring corporations into towns that really, really need jobs as part of an economic development plan broadly defined. Uh, What it really is, is just job piracy. Basically, you're trying to entice a factory to move here rather than to move to the town, you know, one state over or just over the state border because, you know, oh, we'll cut your taxes this much. And uh, in the end, it turns into this sort of race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. This ends up not yielding good jobs for the people. In fact, I I think I think they rolled out. Yeah, I'm shocked. Sadly, economic development doesn't always put money directly in the pockets of workers. What it ends up doing is actually bankrolling a lot of CEOs. And sadly, um, this is money from the public trust, right? right? That is essentially being funneled, you know, out of public coffers because what a tax break is is essentially getting corporations a break on their taxes. So they don't pay the money that they would have been paying, you know, to fund schools and other things like that. They end up keeping, right? Yeah. New Jersey was one of the worst defenders. But, um, you know, again and again, we see these towns that they're in this bind where they have high unemployment. They don't know what to do. And they end up uh, sort of selling their shirts for jobs that end up not panning out. Or in the case of this Idaho town, you know, multinational factory that really just ended up collapsing before it even got started. And it really shows the perils of the kind of global economy that we live in. So um, I don't have an answer for anyone there, um, but this does not seem to be the most promising model. And yet for years now, this is what state and county governments have been pushing as the panacea. And obviously it's a failed model. 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to cheer you up again a little bit because this week Walmart workers are back out on strike. Um, There's two-day strikes going on in Los Angeles and thereabouts that are including civil disobedience rallies with community leaders and clergy and the usual sort of round of events that try to draw attention to Walmart's lousy labor practices, which we've talked about many, 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 many times on this podcast and we'll probably talk about until we die of it or Walmart gets better, and I'm not sure which of those will come first. In any case, these particular strikes come on the heels Actually, of... I can guarantee that we'll die at some point, whereas Walmart may never get better, so I'm, I'm sadly... Walmart might die idea. before it gets better. That's right. also true. Right. Walmart uh, could die. That's I... Anyway, they come on the heels, though, of this spontaneous strike in Florida that was actually not organized, as all these others have been, including today's, by our Walmart, which I consider this a great sign for this movement. We talked a couple of weeks ago with Susie Cagle about wildcat strikes and the problems that some union workers don't seem to take them seriously. But in the case of the Walmart movement, in the case of the fast food movement, one of the things that these sort of minority strikes are trying to do is to empower workers to take action themselves. And so what happens is that you see workers who may not have organizers in their neighborhood helping them come together and formulate a plan to go out on strike. But they're seeing that striking is a tactic that you can use and that you can win with. And so these workers in Florida walked out. And they demanded 40-hour schedules. And according to reports, including by belabored alumni Josh Idelson, they got those 40-hour weeks. And they got 50-cent raises and got a manager transferred away that they didn't like. So once again, I think that this is one of the most hopeful signs for these low-wage worker movements is that workers are starting to take direct action on the job. That this is bringing back this idea that you can actually do something about your workplace conditions other than like quit and go find another low-wage job, but that you can actually have some power in the workplace. And so as Walmart workers are back out on strike again today, as our Walmart members plan actions for Black Friday once again, I'm going to try to leave that on a hopeful note. As we talk about Walmart, we talk about this massive global behemoth. And um, Michelle, why don't you lead us into the next part of our conversation? Yeah, well, talking about Walmart is actually a good segue from we're going from Idaho to, uh, you know, I guess Arkansas is where, where Walmart originated. Yep. Um, and it's actually, you know, uh, all of these things um, are, are linked into a global uh, production system. And one of the more interesting strands of the um, anti-Walmart activism in recent months has been the intersection with the worker struggles in Bangladesh. Um, And you may know this, but um, many of the the disasters that have implicated global companies uh, have often involved Walmart and um, other sort of multinational fashion brand names. And so Walmart clothing, for instance, Walmart labeled clothing was found at the uh, Tazreen factory where um, a terrible fire broke out and killed scores of workers. Several months later, this is followed by the country's worst industrial disaster, um, the Rana Plaza factory complex collapse, which killed over 1,100 people. In both of these struggles, Kalpona Akhtar was uh, one of the leading voices advocating on behalf of Bangladeshi garment workers. She is the head of the uh, Bangladesh uh, Center for Worker Solidarity. Every day she literally 
puts her life on the line to stand up for labor rights in some of the most inhospitable workplaces in the world. Um, Many of these workers are rural to urban migrants. Many of them are incredibly poor young women who are acting as the breadwinners for their families. And they're subjected to not just uh, extreme workplace safety hazards, but also extremely low wages, um, everyday indignities and disrespect on the job. And if they dare stand up to their bosses, they're often um, met with violent retaliation. So, uh, And that's actually what we've seen in the streets for the last uh, several months. Workers have been out in the streets clamoring for a living wage. There have been a series of high-profile strikes and pretty bloody clashes in the streets involving police as well as um, as well as workers and so far um, they seem to be making some gains there is talk of bringing up the minimum wage though it's not clear whether workers demands will ultimately be met um, most likely the minimum wage that the government will offer is uh, going to fall far short of what they're demanding which is a luxuriant $100 per month oh, no. um, yeah I have that. yeah right um, so I mean where do they get off Ask for that. So uh, I talked to Kalpona Akhtar when she was visiting New York recently, and she talked about the ongoing struggles. And uh, she talked about the minimum wage battle in Bangladesh, and she connected that to this global campaign for solidarity among low-wage workers. And she was actually at a Walmart, um, a Walmart rally at the, uh, I think it was the shareholders gathering, or earlier this year, and she, she actually spoke alongside you know, Walmart workers who were uh, campaigning for their own workplace struggles. And um, she was able to very articulately link those struggles together because we're all part of a global supply chain. And so we're going to hear a little bit of what she has to say now. So going forward, do you believe that the uproar and the strikes will continue? I think there were a lot of protests that were met with a lot of police violence and many clashes in the streets. Are you concerned that the situation may escalate? Are you maybe hopeful because there seems to have been some response so far? Or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, the situation is kind of tense there. It is one is the reason is because of the wages and unsafe working place, uh, you know, workplace that was uh, workers facing for a long time. In other hand, the political situation is so intense there. So, you know, the opposition may take advantage of the workers' motion or the workers' demand. I mean, workers are demanding or they're coming uh, in the street with their demands and it is clear that opposition always take advantage of it. So mm-hmm. this time maybe they will take advantage or they will, uh, you know, keep pushing workers to do this. So this mm-hmm. is one. And I'm kind of, you know, uh, nervous because if the minimum wage come in you know, half of the figure of what workers are asking, that will, you know, escalate the situation. In terms of just the kind of work that you're doing, the grassroots work, do you feel like there's a strong organization there? Are there goals that you have in terms of building the grassroots network more? It seems like it's very difficult to get workers who are struggling so much to, you know, try to organize sometimes. But in the last six months, it seems like a lot of the action has been coming directly from the workers themselves. Yeah. I mean, when it is like a massive movement, it is uh, most of time it is, especially when it's rising minimum wage, this sort of uh, movement definitely comes from the workers directly. 
And uh, in terms of that, whether uh, any other grassroots organization, there are definitely, okay. But, you know, it is, there are some yellow union, but in the same time, there are some progress group or grassroots organization like us who do really have a commitment to the workers as their best can. So the side of this minimum wage uh, thing, definitely our, we are supporting workers' wise, except, you know, doing all the vandalizing. And I don't believe that workers themselves doing all this vandalizing. Somehow, third, you know, third group, maybe the political opposition, they are taking advantage and doing the vandalizing. So we definitely do support workers' wise and whatever the amount they're asking or, uh, you know, during the time they do the movement. But uh, what I wanted to say, yes, there are definitely some grassroots organization and grassroots network who, who are working together. Yeah. So far in the last uh, few months, we've seen some international solidarity, some pressure coming from workers at Walmart in the United States as well, and solidarity for the Bangladeshi workers. Are you hopeful that this will continue? And um, are you trying to do more work internationally? in terms of getting workers from Walmart around the world to try to come together and exchange information and build a movement that is global? Yeah, of course. I mean, global support is very important for the garment workers in Bangladesh because it is work through whole supply chain. So, you know, top of the supply chain, there's the consumers group. And somehow uh, the Walmart is a big factor, uh, I think, across the globe. So uh, definitely we need more solidarity or the solidarity support in a continuous basis. And I think in coming months, we are also doing a uh, global day of action with the other Walmart supply chain workers as well. The folks from Uni Global Walmart campaign changed to win uh, Walmart campaign and UFCW Walmart campaign. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to work together in Bangladesh and in the U.S. all day. So we're going to do a lot of solidarity protest. But it is definitely, uh, you know, we we will always need the international solidarity pressure because if we would not get international solidarity, if we would not have this pressure to the corporation, they would not sign this accord. That was Kalpona Akhtar, and she was speaking to us on a recent visit to New York. Um, it's not the first time she's been to the U.S. She was actually here this past summer at the Walmart shareholders gathering, speaking out with um, protesting Walmart workers. And if you want to know more about what went down in that shareholders meeting, you can go back to Belabored Podcast number 10, Who's Walmart? And there, Josh Edelson and Sarah break it down, and they talk about the nitty-gritty that went on um, behind the scenes um, with worker organizations. There. So worker unrest in Bangladesh is clearly still going on. You wrote recently in a piece at In These Times about workers at one factory who um, locked their boss in his office until he paid them bonuses that they promised. Yeah, yeah, you know, because, you know, it was the Eid holiday and uh, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And uh, workers were justifiably upset that the holidays were coming around and there's a dispute over unpaid bonuses and they decided that the only way they could, you know, have a productive conversation about this was to introduce a little bit of duress into the dialogue and they locked him up. There was no um, outright, you know, it didn't escalate. Um, the, the, the boss, you know, stayed calmly, you know, in, in captivity for a number of hours, was released peacefully afterwards after he agreed to their demands. Um, and everybody went home happy, as far see, as I know. See, yeah. And um, I just wanted, you know, I thought I'd take this opportunity to say that, you know, uh, boss napping is not an uncommon phenomenon outside of the United States. It may not be as well known 
known as collective bargaining um, <laughs> in the traditional sense in terms of negotiating, uh, leveraging workers' power. But it is one of these um, escalation tactics that has been used at times when there is an impasse in labor negotiations. And uh, some of my reporting in China has also touched on this. There have been many instances when Chinese workers have decided to similarly take matters into their own hands and put their bosses under some some form of mild, I would say, coercion um, until, you know, their demands have been met. You know, sometimes this is referred to somewhat sensationalistically in the press as boss napping. I prefer to think of it about it as, you know, forceful persuasion, I would say, uh, in, a, in a collective bargaining context. And, you know, this is really what happens when there is no legitimate collective bargaining, bargaining mechanism that is available to these workers at their workplace. I mean, the state-affiliated union in many Chinese workplaces is um, pretty useless. And, you know, this is what happens. They, they take, workers take to the streets or, you know, they, they lock their bosses in their offices until they get what they want. Uh, often, you know, this is at great personal risk to the, to the workers, right? Um, they're putting themselves at risk when they, you know, break the rules, formal or informal, and, and, and try to put their bosses under this kind of pressure. Yeah. But they're willing to do so. And um, there is a kind of social contract that they can appeal to, in a sense. And, and I think a testament to that sense of a social contract beyond sort of what's, what's written in paper or what is enforced in the legal code is, is the fact that many of these bosses do concede, right? And this has happened in France as well. And so, uh, you know, just, just to think outside of the box a little bit in terms of what is possible, right? What is in, what is in the realm of the possible? And so, uh, you know, American workers, take heed. You know. <laughs> Get creative. God We're damn it. We're not actually calling for boss nappings, really, except no. when we are. Certainly um, not, not any napping of a particular boss. Right. We're not targeting anyone in particular. No. But it is, but it, it speaks of a growing sort of labor militancy in these parts of the world where a lot of our stuff is being made. If you look at the clothing that you're wearing right now, belabored listeners, and check your tags, look at where they're made, right? That this is stuff the iPhone or other kind of, kind of smartphone, uh, neither Michelle or I are actual iPhone users, users, are we? But I'm sure, I'm sure but much do blood have has been spilled for our Android right. devices. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think that it's obviously important to be aware of not just the tactics, but the struggles of the people in other countries who are actually making the stuff that we use and to feel and act in solidarity with them, which is one of the things that, as you mentioned, is, is sort of impressive about some of this Walmart organizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and just to uh, touch really quickly, go back to China, there's, yeah. um, you know, similar reports have been coming out about the electronics industry, mm -hmm. as you may know, like as Sarah said, with with um, uh, Apple devices, you know, Samsung is certainly not <laughs> not immune to any of this criticism. Um, a recent report came out recently, and I have a report coming out on this at, in these times this week um, on Dell, uh, Dell supplier factories. Dude, you're getting Adele, though? Yeah, really. Um, so, uh, you know, we know them as, uh, as you know, your pretty standard household name and office equipment. Um, well, uh, a bunch of NGOs, um, including China Labor Watch, which is based in the U.S., as well as um, some European consumer advocacy groups. Europe is actually pretty far ahead in terms of the consumer advocacy around some of these um, electronics manufacturing firms. They did an in-depth investigation in some of these Dell factories and found some pretty brutish working conditions there. And so they actually found that going back to this whole issue of precarious work and mm -hmm. the use of temp labor, yeah. a lot of these factories in China are actually staffed using temporary labor, um, labor on short-term contracts. And it was basically, it's basically a mechanism for 
bosses to get around hiring real full-time workers. And that is obviously, you know, just as it is a common problem here in America, it is a huge problem elsewhere, whether it's, you know, light manufacturing of high-tech gadgetry in China or, um, you know, it's uh, it's workers in, in um in a heavy industry factory, um, everyone's jobs are becoming more and more precarious. And if you want to read more about some of the global solidarity efforts that are forming around this issue of precarious work, you should go to the website of the Industrial Union. That's uh, Industry A-L-L, and it's a European-based uh, union consortium that does organizing around the world among different types of industrial workers and they had a worldwide sort of day to combat precarious work. And uh, they touched on issues such as, you know, uh, not just basic, you know, wage issues, but also um, having reasonable work schedules, having dignity and respect on the job, having equitable uh, maternity leave policies. All of these things are acute issues when it comes to the workers who are increasingly disempowered in their workplaces. And it's just important to remember that often what is at the core of a lot of these issues is the fact that workers simply do not have the job security to stand up to their bosses. And once they do have that contract in hand, once they have some modicum of economic security, then they're empowered to stand up for their rights in the workplace. I mean, it's really interesting because we think about outsourcing. We think about companies that are shipping production overseas, and they do it, of course, because it's cheaper, right? As Michelle mentioned, the Bangladeshi workers are fighting to get their monthly wages raised to $100 an hour. Yeah. By Um, the way, that would be more than doubling what it is now. But they also move their production overseas to have some distance from it, right? So they're moving the work of making your iPhone or your whatever away from Apple, away from California, away from all the things that are actually associated with the brand to someplace else that is far away, that is subcontracted and subcontracted and subcontracted. Mm-hmm. And you get all these layers of you know, separation from responsibility for the work. Of course. And then adding these... And limited legal liability. And most importantly, what is known in corporation speak as a plausible deniability when something terrible goes on, like um, 1,100 workers dying. Right. Yeah. So the, the fact that they're adding in these temp agencies there is like, how many layers of distance from this stuff do you need? Like, it seems... I probably they I'm sure they don't mean it this way, but it seems to me like an implicit admission that they know that something shady is going on. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the further they are from the center of production, the harder it is to hold them accountable. And now I think what's really amazing about some of the work that the Walmart strikers are doing, in conjunction with you know the migrant workers who are working in the fish processing plants and the seafood processing plants, mm-hmm. as Josh reported earlier, as well as you know the the workers in Bangladesh, is that everyone is seeing that they're all part of a single system. This is what corporations knew all along, right? Right. This is how they structured the entire global manufacturing system, and they kept it atomized deliberately to keep us, consumers and workers, in the dark and not realize that we are part of this system. And by thinking holistically and then creating sort of a systemic, unified grassroots movement, grassroots response to that in the labor movement is, you know, the only thing that will, is the only thing that will save us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to note that, like you said, that these temp agencies are all over the U.S. as well, that these are a huge part of American manufacturing as well as American offices. I've got a story coming up on this stuff, hint, hint. But at the moment, what I'll say is that we found that by the 90s, so many temp workers are being used in manufacturing, which they're not 
subtract, if you look at Department of Labor statistics, workers that work for temporary agencies are not counted by the kind of work they do. They're counted as sort of service workers because they work for a temp agency, regardless of whether the work they're doing is actually skilled manufacturing labor. I spoke to Aaron Hatton, who wrote a book called The Temp Economy, who told me that some 50% of the loss of manufacturing jobs in the 90s weren't really lost. We presume that they were outsourced. Well, I mean, in a way, they were outsourced. They're just outsourced right back here to a temp agency rather than to the company that they actually work for. We've spoken about this with the Nissan workers in Mississippi that are trying to organize that a lot of the workers who are making cars are now employed by a temp agency. And Mm -hmm. they, (laughs) right? So yeah, it's, it's outsourcing with all the benefits of having the workforce here, which is, you know, you know, their approximate education level, they speak English, they're right here, your shipping costs are less as, you know, fuel prices go up and up or, or are just unpredictable. But you also have the benefits of outsourcing, which is that you don't actually take legal responsibility for the workers. Yeah, that is what I'll call a win-win for the management there, because they get all the benefits of having a skilled workforce without any of the burdens, such as having to pay them a living wage or respecting them on the job or, you know, adhering to uh, various workplace protections. Yeah, Um, I I think it's a really important thing to... um, to bring up when we talk about, you know, workers in Indonesia were on strike recently. You have some notes here about Madagascar. We've got workers all over the world who are making products that we need. We've also got workers right here that are making products that we need that are made invisible by the status of their labor, not just the distance from us that they actually indeed have. And uh, we've all touched on this and probably experienced it to some degree, but the excessive use of intern labor is also mm-hmm. another piece of this, right? Yeah. Interestingly enough, one thing I found out when I was researching the workers in the Dell supplier factories is that many of the student workers that they hire um, are basically doing this factory work with the hopes of it one day leading to a better remunerating job, is that they are referred to as interns there as well. So we have interns in the electronics factories that are doing sort of the drudge work of creating our computers. Are they paid? Um, Well, they are paid far, far less, Uh right? And so it's the same issue as with um, temp workers, right? right? And the the argument with interns is always that they're learning something exciting. Well, great, you're learning something exciting. You're learning how to do a job that even if you do get that job, you still don't get paid anything. Right. They're learning how to suppress rage, I think. Would be, that's that's um, definitely right, a skill right, you as, learn. As one, one friend of mine once said, that's, yes. <laughs> very, <laughs> very handy. That is definitely a, a skill that you learn. Yeah, I think it, it highlights, once again, one of the things that I, I presume belabored listeners know by now. If not, you need to take all of all 30 episodes of Descent's belabored podcast at once and then call us later. Is it there's sort of no such thing as a good job in itself, right? That none of these jobs are inherently good or bad, that manufacturing jobs aren't inherently better jobs than service jobs or anything else. What makes a job good is the amount of power and control and, well, yes, wages that you get for it. And uh, I think on, on that note, um, we should also, do we want to get into uh, the ARGs of the week? I think you seem like you have something that uh, that made you go ARG Well, this I week. mean, all this, all this talk about um, 
you know, we're talking about production workers, we're mm-hmm. talking about light industry, light manufacturing, and, and um, you know, these other things that are sort of uh, uh, the, the way economic uh, productivity and factory productivity are sort yeah. of fetishized in ways that end up really dehumanizing workers. Yeah. And um, Vandana Shiva had a really important piece come out in The Guardian a few days ago um, about how economic growth is really sort of, you know, murdering life, um, I, I think, to paraphrase her title, you know, exactly what she called it, but she was basically saying that um, the way we measure GDP is this really sort of soul-destroying exercise in which we are taught to calculate the economic value of destroying lives and destroying the earth and destroying all of our natural resources. Even the term natural resources is quite problematic because Mm -hmm. it it talks about um, natural things as being there for humans to exploit, right? Right. Forest is not valued as forest. It is timber, right? right? It's only valuable once we chop down those trees, right? It has... You know, unless you go through one of these sort of fancy schmance carbon calculations and other things like that, it's very difficult to sort of really have any sort of economic measure Uh of the worth of something like old growth forest, right? Until we change the entire economic paradigm they're operating around. And and she's not making sort of, you know, an anti-economics argument altogether, but what she is saying is that um, our our calculation of GDP is so narrow now, and Uh it it warps our mentality in a way that we are taught to think that the only way to be productive is to destroy life in the process of creating things. And I know that sounds sort of hippy-dippy or whatever, um, gloom and doom, but I think it's it's really important to understand that we're labor people here, right? So we like to talk about labor issues and work and workplace yeah. and factories and, and unions and, and other things that go into um, the engines of our economy, right? And so to that degree, we're all sort of complicit in this system. But one of the things we really have to recognize in all these struggles is that what we really are fighting for is the protection of our livelihoods and our lives and our dignity, yeah. right? And those are things that cannot be monetized. Right. Um, that's at the core of so many of these struggles. Yeah, and it's interesting to sort of put that model back onto people for a minute, right? When you're thinking about the the resource being what you can extract from, you know, the forest or whatever, the only value that we have to capital is the labor that they can extract from us. And we are fighting most of the time to be valued as a human and not just the labor power that can be extracted. Um, and I think that's a particularly relevant when we're t- trying to talk about the plight of women workers, right? Of, you know, all sorts of disenfranchised, disempowered people, whether it's gender inequality, racial inequality, young people, right? right? Um, there's a lot of ageism in the workforce. Um, uh, uh, there are all sorts of ways that the workforce is cut up and carved up uh, mm-hmm. in order to suppress certain groups or elevate certain groups at the expense of others. And yeah. what it really does is um, the, the, the destructiveness of that model is that it turns people against each other when they really should be looking for ways to unify. So on that note, Michelle gave me a good lead into my ARG piece for this week, which is um, Heidi Moore at The Guardian writing about a study from Columbia Business School that found that bosses and coworkers feel entitled to favors from, you guessed it, women at work. Um, or she wrote, quote, that almost everything a woman does at work is considered a favor that is off the clock. Um, We, well, I certainly have talked before on this podcast about women's work being devalued because it's seen as something that women are inherently good at when we're talking about care work, teaching, nursing, things like that, that are not seen as real work because they're seen as just things that you're good at doing. So women spend more time in the workplace, for instance, mentoring, mentoring down specifically is more mentioned, that 
it's not taken seriously. It's not seen as important. It's not seen as part of their job. So when you talk about almost everything women do at work being considered something that they do for pleasure, not for work, when our work is invisible, how do we ever get rewarded for it? So Moore writes, favors are a currency and women are suffering from a currency crisis. In other words, favors are another part of the job that women aren't being paid for. In this case, the payment would be a returned favor, a, ra a raise, or a promotion. She mentions an example from her own life where she connected a hiring manager to a, a person that he might want to hire for a prestigious job, and afterwards neither person thanked her for this. And, you know, on the one hand, she says it's just a thank you, it's not that huge a deal, except that it happens over and over and over again. And if that favor is not acknowledged, then when she turns around and asks that person for a favor then, then what? Then does she get that or do, is she seen as just simply imposing? It's like the housework that women still do most of. It's often emotional labor, like making connections, like mentoring. And it's still gendered and thus it's still taken for granted. And conversely, the flip side of that, right, is that when men do these things, it's seen as real work. It's seen as something visible that they step outside of themselves to do. Right. So at the end of the piece, she calls for a cultural shift. She says there are multiple ways that society places too little value on the contribution of women, then tells them they're not contributing enough. The problem isn't individual, it's not personal, it's social, and changing it, quote, seems to be a change that society considers a mere favor. It's actually going to be real work. Mm -hmm. So we will put links to those pieces as well as everything else that we talked about today at the Descent website. We thank you as always for listening to us run our mouths about all of these exciting, depressing, and occasionally, occasionally positive topics. Yes. I mean, as we as we careen into this uh, post Bloomberg era, we'll we're sh we'll be sure to update you on uh, you know the the labor landscape in New York City and how it's changing or not. And we remind you that we did not specifically tell anybody that they should kidnap their boss, right? Or <laughs> vote for a certain candidate. No, no endorsements of any kind of it's um, a little it's a little legal or electoral anyway. activity. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, but if you do kidnap your boss, we want to hear about it. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot, we can't go. Society.